I looked at you, John, I know you're not a father yet, but one of these days, I'll say Happy Father's Day to you. Well, good morning. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Perhaps you've had the experience before of driving somebody else's car. Now, the hardest thing about driving somebody else's car, in my opinion, is figuring out where all the knobs and the levers and the buttons, you know, at least the important ones, right? Now there's got to be about 30 or 40 of them there, but what, what are the really important ones? You've got to find those. Uh, there's nothing like hitting a rainstorm in somebody else's car and not knowing where the windshield wipers are. You know, do you focus on the road and not going off the road, or do you, you keep fumbling through the options? It's always more comforting to get back to your own car and know exactly where everything is. Uh, there's something about returning to what, what is familiar that's comforting. It's comfortable. You, know, you think about that in other ways, too. Uh, it's more comfortable to shop at the grocery store where you know where everything is at than to go to a new one and go zigzagging to find the essentials. You know, I used to like the old setup of the Aldi because you just walk in and it was like, it was like a rat maze. You, it just worked you right through there and threw you out at the counters. You know, now, now I have to do a little more work. But anyways, you go, you go to a place where you know because you, you know it's familiar. It's comfortable. I'll just throw one more example out there. You know, if you've gone on a long trip and you've been out or if you've been camping uh, and you're out for a week or a couple weeks, there's something that's very comforting about finally getting back to your own bed, resting in your own house. Familiarity often brings comfort. Uh, but in our text today, Jesus is going to go to a very comfortable place. Uh, excuse me, a very familiar place. Uh, he's going to go to a place that he uh, has probably built some of the furniture at. He's going to a place where he has probably worked on some of the houses. Uh, he's going to a, a place where everybody knows who he is. Uh, he's coming home. The familiarity runs thick, but it's not going to be a place of comfort for Jesus. Uh, it's not going to be a nostalgic experience. Uh, here, familiarity will not bring comfort. So let's read our text. We'll start in chapter 6, verse 1, and work down through the end of verse 6 today. Mark 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you so much that you have sent your son into this world. Lord, your son said that he had no place to rest his head. That even foxes have a den to go to, but, but not him. But thank you so much that you have done so much for us. We bless you. We thank you. Pray you'd help us as we look into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
No, I think one short phrase kind of flavors this whole story for us. They read that. It says, and they took offense at him. Now that phrase is the interpretive key to understanding how the events of this passage are playing out. And in light of that, and really in light of the whole gospel of Mark as the message comes together, I think the key thing that we should take from this passage is that we should accept Jesus who was rejected for your salvation. Just as we focused on faith a couple weeks ago when we were in the last story at, at the end of Mark 5, um, so faith is going to be a key operative element in this passage as well. As we look at this episode, I want to examine it in three parts. We'll work through the passage. I want to look at Jesus' return, particularly his return to Nazareth. His return, Jesus' rejection, and Jesus' response. So let's look first at Jesus' return to his hometown. Uh, now, this happening in, in Mark chapter 6 takes place. You'll remember uh, Jairus' daughter has become sick. He's gone to find help with Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And Jesus has gone. Along the way, he's stopped and he's talked to a woman who's been healed by him. And then uh, he continues on. By that time, she's died. And yet, death has no hold on her when he says, little girl, arise. And she raises up from the dead. This is what he's just done. And it says he, he's left there now. He, he went away from there. Uh, he's left where he was at by the Sea of Galilee and he's heading home. Now we saw in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, that Capernaum was called Jesus' home. At least that was his base of operation in his ministry in Galilee. Uh, but this is a, a different word here, and this is a different place. Uh, the Greek word here is patrida, and it's, it's his fatherland, basically. It's, it's the, the place he grew up. And he's coming home uh, to the town he's grown up in. This is the town where he worked at his skill trade, for many years before he began his public ministry. And what kind of a town is Nazareth, after all? We know primarily about it from Scripture. Uh, and archaeology has some interesting things to tell us. But of course, the scriptural witness is the most important. Uh, Nathaniel, in John's Gospel, he sums up the greatness and the grandeur of Nazareth uh, when he asks one simple question about Jesus. Can anything good come from Nazareth? <laughs> you know what? Uh, Maybe Nazareth wasn't so great. Uh, in fact, if it weren't for Jesus, we would have never heard of Nazareth. Uh, it would have been a, a blip on, on the planet, and it would have been nothing. Uh, we wouldn't have heard of this village if it wasn't for him. Uh, it was the hometown of Joseph and Mary. Luke chapter 2, verse 4, tells us that uh, Joseph and Mary come from Nazareth when they go to Bethlehem. Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, says that they return to Nazareth, after they've been in Egypt for two years. And so Nazareth is the town that Jesus grew up in. And the word Nazareth most often occurs in the Bible right after Jesus' name. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That's the place where he's from. That's what it's best known for. Uh, now in history, Nazareth would become a famous town because of Jesus, but it wasn't famous when he lived there. Uh, archaeologists have unearthed the ancient city of Nazareth. Uh, there's a city there now but they've done excavating under the current buildings and the churches that are there. Uh, and what they've found of the ancient city is that they estimate that the ancient city of Nazareth was basically cut into a hillside, and uh, it was probably about 60 acres. That's not a very big area, right? This ancient city is about 60 acres. You could walk across that, and it wouldn't take you too long. 
So the population there was probably 500 max, uh, as best they can reconstruct. Uh, so the Nazareth of Jesus' day was a small town. Uh, I, I would guess that it wouldn't take too much work to get to know everybody who lives there, especially if you had been there for a couple decades of your life with your family and they already know people. It wouldn't take too much work to get to know just about everybody there. And when uh, Jesus is coming back to his hometown, he's coming back to a, a village of people that probably all know him. They're probably all familiar with him. Uh, but he's not coming back for a few days to take it easy. He's not coming back to uh, live up the good old days in a place that's settled. Uh, he brings his disciples with him. He's on a mission. He's carrying out his ministry. Uh, the disciples that come with him are certainly the twelve. In fact, we'll see next week that he's going to send them out. Uh, but it's probably more than the twelve. There was quite an entourage that moved around with Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus goes and teaches in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Again, this is probably the Sabbath that Jesus grew up in. He probably sat for a lot of hours listening to the rabbi teach from the Torah, or the leader in the synagogue. And now he's coming to teach. He's going to teach. But just because Jesus is at home, it doesn't mean that he's disengaging from ministry. I think it's easy for us to be in the home context and kind of disengage. I think it's especially true for vocational ministers, but it's true for all of us. It's really easy to... to uh, to give and to serve outside of the home and then come home and take for granted the, the ministry that has to happen there. Uh, may God help us to be faithful in every realm that he's called us to. Uh, so Jesus has come home. Now let's look next at Jesus' rejection. We've seen his return. Let's look at his rejection. Now at first, it seems like people receive Jesus well. If you're just reading along, it seems like he gets a good response. It says here that people respond to his teaching with astonishment. That sounds good, right? But it's not. In their astonishment, they begin to ask questions that are laced with skepticism. They say, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Jesus' teaching was as striking as ever. And they're wondering, where did he get this stuff? How did he get so clever? And they wonder about his miracles. How are such mighty works done by his hands? They are astonished, but it is not a faith-filled astonishment. They, they dig in deeper as they ask more questions. You see that in verse 4. It says, excuse me, this is verse 3. It says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, jo yeah, Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us, they took offense at him. They know Jesus, or at least they think they do. Uh, they know where he grew up. They know his family. They seem to think, how can this guy be anything special? You know, he's no better than one of us. It's as if the people of Nazareth are too close to see Jesus rightly. You know, the idea of being farsighted or nearsighted, right? If you're, if you're farsighted, you can't see what's up close. And if you're nearsighted, you, you can't see what's farther out. Uh, it's almost like the people of Nazareth have a spiritual farsightedness. Jesus is right there in front of them the whole time, and they don't get it. They, they can't make out the details of who he is. They're presented with 
probably more evidence than anybody else as to who the identity of Jesus is. And they don't get it. They won't get it. They refuse to get it. They see Jesus and they write him off. They are so familiar with Jesus that they refuse to accept his greatness. You know, maybe they were muttering to themselves, who does this guy think he is? Once again, Mark puts before us a shocking reality. Those who we would expect to accept Jesus reject him. And really, this is just a small picture of what John will say in John 1, verse 11. John says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Here is Jesus, as Mark reports him to us. Uh, he has casted out countless demons. He has healed so many sick people. He has taught with an authority that is unparalleled to anything the scribes have uttered. He can tell the sea to be quiet, and it'll lay flat as a pancake. And not even death is able to say no to Jesus. All of these great and amazing things have been said and done by Jesus, but his hometown rejects him. They can't, can't get past the fact that he grew up among them. Now that is incredibly sad. They have no problem accepting the humanity of Jesus. You know, the, the later creeds in the early church, they wouldn't have had any problem writing off on an affirmation of the full humanity of Jesus. They didn't have any problem accepting that he was a man. But the greatness of Jesus, the fact that he was the Christ, the fact that he was the Son of God, that he was God himself, no way. They would not have any of that. Many people around us today in our society don't even accept the humanity of Jesus, much less his deity. You know, by the way, on a side note, uh, good, honest historians are really forced to accept that Jesus actually existed. There's enough evidence, even outside of the scriptures, to, to demonstrate the fact that, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. And people who deny that are generally people who just don't want to believe it. Uh, the, the, the evidence there is even beyond other historical figures. But we know from Scripture that he did exist. The, the people of Nazareth here, they had no doubt that Jesus existed. Uh, but it's not enough to accept that Jesus was a, a good man or that he taught some good things. Uh, even these people here rejected him. To be saved by Jesus, we have to accept who he truly is in all of his greatness. And we have to accept then next what he has done for us. The rejection that Jesus faces here is a small picture of the rejection that he's going to face when his mission turns from Galilee to Jerusalem. You remember, I said this before, Mark's gospel, in the first part of it, uh, it's his ministry to Galilee. It's all focused on what he does north of Jerusalem in Galilee and in that area. Then there's going to be a shift coming up in a couple chapters where it's going to start describing Jesus as on the way. And where is he on the way to? He's on the way to Jerusalem. And as his ministry shifts from Galilee to Jerusalem, the rejection he faces here is just a small picture of the kind of rejection he's going to face when he gets to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Jesus will be betrayed by one of his own disciples. He's going to be unjustly run through a kangaroo court. He will be crucified at the hands of sinful men. He will be rejected by his own people to death. And he will be executed by the Roman government by means of a cross. But that's not all. And that's not the worst of it. From the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, in some way that I don't think we can get our minds fully around, Jesus was forsaken even by his father on the cross. And all of this was in fulfillment of the words of Isaiah who had spoken hundreds of years earlier about the suffering servant. Uh, in Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, the prophet foretold this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, was crushed by God so that the judgment that we deserve would not fall on us. Jesus was punished in our place so that we could know the freedom and joy and love of being the children of God. And we celebrate today Father's Day as Father's Day, and uh, that is such a gift. I'm thankful for my dad. I'm thankful for the fathers of this church. And we look to a father who has been inexpressibly more loving, more patient, more kind to us than anything we will ever find on this planet. Uh, God has been so good to us. He's sent his son, and through his son, he has called us in. He's called us into himself. He has adopted us into his family. And I know the Bible never teaches that we're going to be divine like Jesus is divine. Jesus is the unique son of God, but we are brought in. We are adopted as God's true children through Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus willingly received all of this rejection so that we could be accepted. He was casted out. He was the outcast so that we could be brought in. We deserve to be outside. We deserve to be cast out and thrown away. He took that upon himself so that we could be brought in. That is the mercy of God that we have been given. Praise God for his kindness to us. And this good gift is offered to all those who reject their own efforts to be good enough, who turn away from their own works and accept the free forgiveness of God's grace in Jesus Christ by faith alone. This is the gospel message. This is our standing with God. And we will spend eternity with him because of this. As we've seen in our passage, the people of Nazareth would have none of it. They would not accept that Jesus was anybody more than the son of Mary and the brother of his siblings. Let's look lastly now, on the last few verses here, let's look at Jesus' response. We've seen his return, his rejection. Let's look at his response to this whole episode. When I reread verse 4 here, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. Now, there was apparently a proverb, uh, there's evidence of this in Jewish writings and in Greek writings as well, Greco-Roman context, that something along these lines, it's kind of a proverbial truth, and Jesus is citing it here. You know, I, I am the youngest in my family, I'm the youngest of five, and I'll tell you, if you're the youngest, you're always the youngest, 
You know, you never outgrow being the youngest in your family. Older siblings are just always older, and they think they're also always smarter. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they are. I don't know. <laughs> I heard an amen over there. <laughs> Jesus points out that a prophet is honored everywhere. He's honored everywhere except at home. Uh, that's kind of the idea he's running with here. You know, there, there, there's places where he's just not honored. It's at home. And, and Jesus mentions three concentric circles of relationships here, and he keeps moving closer to home in the process. Prophet's not honored in his hometown, in his village. He's not honored among his relatives, and he's not honored among his household. Uh, now, we already saw in Mark's gospel that when Jesus' family hear about him and the things that he's doing, they go to collect him. Uh, they think that he is driving the, Christ, the crazy bus, you know. They, they think he's out of his mind, and so they, they go to bring some sense to him. Familiarity can be a means of comfort, but, you know, we have a proverb of our own in America, uh, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, that, that's another saying here. Uh, and the good old familiar Nazareth holds Jesus in contempt. When Jesus quotes his proverb to his home people, one of the things I think he's doing is he is showing that he's not caught off guard. You know, when Nazareth rejects Jesus to his face, it doesn't throw him off. Uh, it doesn't throw him into an introspective depression. Uh, he doesn't sit down and soak in a hot tub of self-pity when they reject him. Now, that's something we might do. That might be our natural response, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't respond in that way. He responds with this proverb, and I think that points to their condition. Uh, he's responding in a way that, that's showing that the way that they respond to him is the way of the world. It's just the way that the world operates, and these people of Nazareth are no different. Verse 5 tells us the next thing of his response. It says that he could not do any mighty works there. He could do no mighty work there. <laughs> wow. In the face of their skepticism and rejection, he does no miracle. Now, does that mean that he straight up couldn't do any miracles? That it was impossible for him to do that? Well, no. Uh, in fact, Mark will hurry up next to say, well, in a few cases he did. He, he laid his hands on a few people and he healed them. It's not that he physically or divinely couldn't do any miracles. It's that in the face of their unbelief, he won't do it. In the face of their skepticism, he's not going to do it. Remember, in another place, the Pharisees come to him and they say, well, Jesus, show us a sign. Give us some sign to tell us who you are. And in the face of his skepticism, he won't do it. He, he's not going to uh, play the drummer for them. He's not going to put on a light show for them. Uh, in the face of their skepticism, he doesn't do it. And he doesn't heal many people in Nazareth. The next thing we see in Jesus' response is that he marvels at their unbelief. Now, if Jesus marvels at your unbelief, you are in a bad way. Uh, you know, while Jesus is not tossed off balance by their unbelief, he does marvel at it. It is a striking reality to him. And Mark is putting this episode in front of us to call us to believe in Jesus. Uh, we shouldn't be like the people of Nazareth. I think that's one of the points of this being put in front of us. 
We want to be like Jairus. We want to be like the woman who was healed of her bleeding disease. Uh, they both believed in Jesus, and now we get a counterexample that even in his own hometown, Jesus is not accepted. This is an invitation for us to join those two other examples and trust Jesus. Trust him certainly with salvation, uh, to trust him with our very lives, knowing that he knows what he is doing. Jesus is trustworthy. He's worthy of all of our trust, and so we should believe in him. The last thing in Jesus' response, we got a note at the end of verse 6, is that he moves on. He doesn't stay in Nazareth, pining away, hoping that they'll get a better opinion of him. He doesn't, well, maybe if I stay another day, maybe if I stay another two weeks, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll have a better thought about me. He moves on. That's a very sad reality, but... That's what he does. It's not too different than when he was in the Decapolis and the people ask him to go and he leaves. He goes among the villages teaching, Mark tells us. Uh, this is what he's been doing all along in Galilee. He goes around, he's been preaching and teaching and healing people. He moves on. You know, the scripture tells us that today is the day of salvation. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Um, we don't know how long Jesus will stay at his father's right hand before he returns. The day of judgment is always one step closer for every human being. Today is the day to make things right with God. If you haven't done that, do it today. Cast yourself on his mercy. He accepts all those who come to him in faith and repentance. And so we see that Jesus has come to his hometown and he leaves it again. In the big picture, this is a sad day for Nazareth. As Mark includes in this episode, uh, He's including this for us to learn from it, and, and as we read it, he's calling us to accept Jesus, who was rejected for our salvation. The people of Nazareth couldn't accept Jesus. And the question for us is this, can we? And if we have accepted him, can we follow him? Are we willing to follow him, whatever the cost? Even if it means that we might be rejected as he was. And that's exactly what we're going to see next week. As this story continues to move on and Mark is putting this in front of us, we're going to see that rejection comes for more than just Jesus. We're going to continue in our, our time next week uh, following up in Mark chapter 6, but for now we're going to turn to our time for communion. Um, here at Berean, we seek to obey Jesus' 